0: Well, good morning to everyone at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm so happy to be here with you today. So thankful for Dr. Allen for his kind words. Um, I've been blessed by his leadership, both in our church and here on campus and just seeing everything grow and just seeing the blessings that God's pouring out. And when I look at a room like this and I see some of the professors here who poured their lives into me over the years, I'm just, I'm thankful for Midwestern because I'm really a missionary who's been produced by this seminary. This, This seminary has built me up continue to support me and sent me. And in fact, I still listen to the chapel messages even while I'm overseas to be encouraged by the word being taught here on, um, on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And I've found that to be a, a, great, um, a, a great place to build up my soul. Today, I want to I wanna start just by talking about Dr. Allen's Missions Moonshot. In uh, January of 2023, uh, if you've not heard this Dr. Allen announced that Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary intends to produce 100 missionaries per year. People who are on the field for more than two years, 100 per year that this seminary wants to become the sort of seminary that can send that quantity and quality of missionaries that will make a great impact in the whole world. And when I look at what God is doing at Midwestern, I'm thankful for how this seminary continues to grow in its mission's heart and sending more and more people the Fusion program that has been a blessing to the nations over the years, but now many, many more master's students and other students here who are preparing to be missionaries. And it stirs my heart and it fills me with joy to see so many students here with such a heart for the nations. So today, I'm going to be talking about an application mostly for those of you who have it in your heart that one day you may be a missionary, that God might be stirring your hearts to, to go to the nations. And, the, and the, the application is this, that to become a missionary, what you really need to do is continuously take your next step of faith. Becoming a missionary, the, the greatest the greatest gift that a missionary has is their faith, is the belief that God is so great and he's so big, and the ability to, like Peter did, to step out of the boat and to believe that Jesus will lift us up and that he will do amazing things through us. And what I've seen is that if we step out in faith, we serve a great God who can do powerful things through us. And today, I hope that your heart will be stirred. If, you were, if you're one of those people who feels called to missions, even if you're one of those who aren't, I, feel, I hope that you're energized today to take your next step of faith in God and to step out in boldness and to do something great for him. When I think of missions moonshots, um, if I could use, steal Dr. Allen's phrase, it reminds me of William Carey. In 1788, William Carey was just a shoemaker in England and he sat down and wrote a booklet that, that is known as an enquiry into the obligation of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathen. Isn't that a great title of a book? It'd be a great bestseller today. We'd normally just call it an enquiry. But William Carey had in his heart that he, he wanted to be launched to the nations. And at that time, there was no means to send people like him so that they could preach, so that the lost could hear, so that some could believe, confess, and find salvation. There was no means for that to happen meaning that there was no missions agency, that churches had no plan on how to send people to do that great work. And William Carey wrote this little booklet Um, To energize the churches of England to do that great task. And you know what happened? For three years, he lacked the finances to publish his book. For three years, he sat on that booklet. And he, he wanted to publish it until one day he was sharing his burden for the nations with somebody that he knew, a man that he knew. And the man said, why haven't you shared these things more broadly? And he said, I lack the means. I lack the means to publish this booklet. And that man said, I can publish it. Gave him the money. They published that booklet and within about a year of that time, William Curry was on a ship headed for England, for, sorry, from England to India. And he, uh, he made an impact for the nations. And through that, there's been a great tradition that's come into the Protestant world, and especially the Baptist world, of missions. And when, when the, the Southern Baptist Convention was formed in 1845, 179 years ago, Probably the greatest reason that it was formed was to develop two missions boards, what are now called the North American Mission Board and the International Mission Board. It was the burden of Baptists in America to say, how can we make the name of Jesus known among the nations? What is the means to do that? Now, on the front of William Carey's little booklet and Inquiry, he put a few verses. And three of the verses that he put on the front of his booklet were Romans 10, 13 through 15. Romans 10, 13 through 15, as if William Carey was trying to say this, th- these three verses encapsulate God's heart for the nations and what I'm calling the, the churches of England to do to make the name of Jesus great among the nations. So today, those are, those, we're going to look at those three verses. They are relevant for us today and asking that question, how can we make the name of Jesus known among the nations and how can we send missionaries to preach the gospel among those who've never heard so that the lost can hear, believe, confess Jesus and obtain salvation. Before we get into the text, I want to back up just for a moment and talk about a few things. First, my wife and I, we serve among the Muslims of South Asia. And when we think of the Muslims of South Asia, you might not think of Muslims in South Asia as being where the Muslim world is. But think think about this. There's about 620 million Muslims in South Asia. When I'm talking about South Asia, I mostly mean the countries of like Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Bhutan, the Maldives, that area of the world, 620 million Muslims in that area of the world. And if we look throughout Great Commission history, the Muslims of South Asia have been greatly neglected. Far more missionaries have gone to Muslims in the Middle East or Central Asia or to Africa, but the Muslims have often been neglected in the distribution of the gospel of South Asia. And we, we, we have a burden to see more and more missionaries raised up to bring the gospel to that part of the world. Many of you today are asking, where are the greatest needs in the world? And I would, I would submit to you that the Muslims of South Asia continue to be the greatest need in the world for sending missionaries. And among all those countries, I contend that right now the, greatest, the country where we have the greatest need is Bangladesh. And if you're asking the question, where does God want to send me? I would ask you to pray, God, would you send me to Bangladesh to make your name great? among the the Bangla-speaking Muslims of that area of the world. And you have a great teacher here at the seminary, um, in the person of Dr. Joe, who can train you in how to go to that people group. And there's a need. There's a need in that part of the world. And if you're wondering, where, where can I go to proclaim Jesus where he hasn't been named, that's a place to go. Now, as we get into the book of Romans, I want to back up for a moment and just talk about how I approach the word as a missionary. I had a great struggle when I was uh, doing, starting my doctoral studies here at Midwestern about whether I would become a PhD in New Testament or whether I would get a demon in missiology. Those are, those are vastly different degrees, right? I love, I love the, the word. I love the New Testament. And really my heart was to ask this question, how do we bridge those worlds between Greek and New Testament studies and all that? How do we bridge that world with the world of missiology? How do we bring those together? And that was a burden that I had during seminary. And I remember reading a book by Eckhard Schnabel called Paul the Missionary, and in the introduction of that book, he, he described a, a model that has become instruction, instructional to me. He said that really when we're trying to take New Testament studies to practical ministry, there's a series of four steps that we need to take. And I'm, again, just quoting straight from him. And he, he said that these four steps are, first, we need to do an analytical biblical theology of everyone, every text of the New Testament. What he meant is we need to dig into every passage of Scripture. We need to understand what is the missiology of the book, book of Romans? What is the missiology of the book of Galatians? What is the missiology of the book of John? And dig into each book and, and go deep in those. The second thing we need to do is synthesize those, a, synthet- and synthet- sorry, a synthetic biblical theology of mission. Synthesize what is the Johannine biblical theology of mission? What is the Pauline biblical theology of mission? How do we put Galatians and Romans together? The third task that Schnabel talks about is the hermeneutical task. And what he means by that is how do we bridge the first century to today? What is the, what is the process by which we, we take first century and modern missiology and, and bridge those worlds? And then the last task is the pragmatic task, meaning what what are those tools that we need to develop for missionaries built upon the word, built on the analytical, synthetic, and hermeneutical tasks that instruct a missionary of what they're supposed to do on a Monday morning when they wake up. And one of the problems that we've sometimes seen in missiology is that many missionaries don't know how to go back to the analytical and synthetic. They don't have a hermeneutical process by which to bridge those worlds. And many many New Testament scholars don't know how to go back go and develop the pragmatic task. And sometimes these worlds have seemed apart. And one of my passions is to bring those worlds together. Is to say, how do we bring the world of New Testament studies and missiology together? And for me, the the, the answer in the New Testament is the person of Paul. I earnestly believe that the New Testament paints the Apostle Paul as the ideal missionary upon which modern missionaries should base their lives and their ministry, that we should seek to emulate Paul and and our lives and ministry as missionaries on the field. And I'm not going to be able to go this morning into all the details of that, but if you want to hear some of my thoughts on that, I'd love to hear back from you if you go and read this article. In the fall edition of the Midwestern Journal of Theology, I published an article on this. And I have to read the title of the article, I can't even remember it, um, but it's called, uh, here it is, Validating Pauline Emulation as a Missiological Hermeneutic in 2 Timothy. And I love the letters to Timothy and Titus, First, Second Timothy and Titus, as missionary texts. Um, read that and, and just dig into that if you want to, about asking that question, how should we read those as missionary tasks, and how should those inform our hermeneutic of how we approach Scripture? And so what I do is I'm seeking to dig into each each book of the word, the book of Romans today. Ask, what does God want to teach us from the book of Romans about what a missionary is supposed to be and what a missionary is supposed to do? Now, in the book of Romans, there's really three main passages that I've think about: Romans 1, Romans 10, and Romans 15, that are most instructive about our missiology. So turn with me to Romans 1 before we get to Romans 10, and I'm just gonna glance through Romans 1 and Romans 15, and then we're gonna dig into our passage for today. So Romans chapter one, verse one, Paul wrote, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Paul was clearly set apart for the gospel of God by our Lord Jesus Christ. And today, God is still setting people apart and putting in their hearts a passion for the nations. I hope that some of you today are those people. And I hope that some of you who don't even know that that's what God has for you yet, that God might stir that in your hearts today. Go down a few verses to verse five. Paul wrote, through him, that's through God, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles. This was Paul's calling, that God had given him this grace, that God had given him this apostleship to do this task. And today, apart from the grace of Christ and the calling of Christ, I don't think that we as missionaries can accomplish what we need to among the nations. We need the power of Christ to guide us. But this is our task. Just as Paul existed to call about obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, that's our job. My wife and I exist. Our calling from the Lord is to bring about obedience of faith among the Muslims of South Asia, to bring them into the kingdom of God, to, to, to make God's name known. Jump down to verse 14. We, I wish we could go verse by verse through this whole section, but verse 14 he, Paul wrote, I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and foolish. Many translations use the word debtor here. And Paul says that he has a debt to the nations, that he has a debt to the nations. And certainly the nations hadn't given Paul anything that he owed to them. But what Paul means by this is that God had given him something that he was obligated to give to the nations. And the missionary are those people who feel that they have a calling from the Lord, that have, that God has given us something and that we are obligated to bring it to those, to the nations. And there's a greatness in this calling, isn't there? There's a greatness in a calling um, and having this urge inside of us to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known. Turn with me to Romans chapter 15. And I want to just share a little bit about the context of the letter of Romans. So Paul was writing the book of Romans to this church at Rome that he had never met before, that he did not plant, trying to enlist them as a a mission-sending church. He desired them to partner with him to get the gospel to Spain, which at that point was an unreached place, that nobody in Spain had ever heard the gospel. So look at me with me at verse 19. So he said, by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's spirit, as a result, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. In that place, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, there were about 20 million people during the time of Paul. 20 million people who were far away from God. And here is Paul saying, I've filled up that area. I've fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Now that's impossible for one man to have done during the 12 to 15 year span that we're talking about here. So what does he mean by that? He means that he'd left behind leaders, churches, missionaries pastors who were able to continue that task and because there were people in that area who were ready to continue that task he had his sight set to go to the next place he says in verse 20 my aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named so that I will not build on someone else's foundation this is the missionary urge I think that some people read a passage like this and they say yes that's what I want I want to be the one to name Christ where he hasn't been named. And I want to tell you, there are places where Christ has not been named in the world today. There are 3,000 unreached, unengaged people groups in the world today. 3,000 people groups have that have not yet, have no gospel presence among them. We're going to get back to that in a moment. But that, that becomes our aim, right? To preach the gospel there among those people so that they might hear and believe that they can confess and have salvation. Go down a few more verses. When Paul writes this in verse 23, he says, I have no longer, um, but now I no longer have any work to do in these regions. And I have strongly desired for many years to come to you whenever I travel to Spain. So Paul is saying, I don't have work left to do from Jerusalem to to Illyricum. I need to go on to the next place. And in Romans chapter 10, the passage we're going to focus on, Paul is focusing on the why of sending the why of why he's why he wants to be go on and preach the gospel to that uh, those people who've never heard and really p- building his theology of sending to preach so that people can hear so that some can believe so that they can confess and that they can obtain salvation so let's look at Romans 10:13 through 15 where we'll spend the rest of our time for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved how then can they call on him they have not believed in And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? In this passage, the Apostle Paul outlines a six-step process, a six-fold process by which sending gets to salvation. If we look at verse 15, how can they preach unless they're sent? Sending is the starting point. Sending is the starting point. Before even sending, as Dr. Allen has said in the missions moonshot, they need to be produced. We need to develop missionaries so that they can be sent. The purpose of sending is so that they can preach. And here the word preach mostly means heralding the gospel in places where it's not known, making Christ known where he has not been named. Go up to verse 14. It says, uh, the last question, how can they, um, sorry, how can they hear without a preacher? If people don't have somebody to bring the gospel to them, they cannot hear the gospel. And there are people groups around the world, there are 3,000 unreached, unengaged people groups around the world who have not heard. Before that, how can they believe without hearing about him? If somebody can't believe, the miracle of God can't happen in their heart where they can believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And it asks before that, how can they call on him they have not believed in? Confessing the Lord Jesus Christ is an important step in our salvation. And it says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. As it says just a few verses earlier in verse 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So let's talk about this word salvation for a moment. And God's desire to bring salvation to the nations. So Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, if there's a verse in scripture that is the the verse of the International Mission Board, it's Revelation 7, 9. And it says this, After this I looked, and behold, there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white with palm branches in their hands, and they were crying, Salvation belongs to our God. That's what the the great vision at the end. It's going to be better than any Chiefs Super Bowl parade will ever be. That, that, That vision of what God will do is going to be so powerful, and I can't wait to be part of it. A great multitude that no one can count. Every kind of people group will be in the kingdom of God, according to this verse. Every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And when, when missionaries have gotten together and missions organizations have gotten together, we have tried to ask, what does it mean, every tongue and tribe and people and nation? Well, the IMB has about the best research department of any missions organization in the world. It's one of the best things about the IMB. What we have broken that down into is that there are 12,111 people groups in the world. 12,111 peoples that need the gospel. When we consider that, the IMB has kind of three tiers that we've broken this down into. 12,111 people groups. Of those, 7,259 are considered unreached people groups. 60% of the peoples of the world are in unreached people groups. 60%. That's unacceptable, isn't it? 60% of all that total people group, meaning that they have less than 2% followers of Jesus among that people group. And those are the peoples among whom the IMB struggles to labor, that missionaries should go to, to, to proclaim Jesus among these people groups who have very little witness. Even more restrictive than that are unreached, unengaged people groups. These are people groups among whom we cannot identify a single Christian, a church, there's nobody bringing the gospel to them. They have no hope in the world. Nobody's bringing Jesus, and they need a witness. They need a preacher to go so that they can hear. Currently, there's about 3,179 people groups in the world. Think about that. 2,000 years of Great Commission history, and we have over 3,000 people groups that we haven't gotten to yet. One out of every four people groups on the planet has yet to hear the gospel. The IMB exists because that, tr- that, that difficulty it's unacceptable. We exist to change that number, and one of the stories I want to share with you today is stories of hope that we are seeing unreached, unengaged people groups have the first believers for the first time, and today, I'm, I'm going to be changing the names. Just know that um, I, for the sake of security, I don't want to share all the names, but we've, we've seen just amazing things the last years. Since we've been on the field, um, these last years we've been on the field, we have, um, we've gotten to see colleagues, see unreached, unengaged people groups, groups reach for the first time, But one of the most joyful things of our last term was getting to see reports and getting to meet the first believers among over about 20 Muslim people groups that we got to see in the last few years that are their first believers. And one of those I'm going to call the Basharat today. And the Basharat are a people group in South Asia that for 2,000 years had not heard about Jesus. We had them on a list and my team and I, we were praying for this people group, but we didn't know how to find them. And so we were praying, and this is how God started to bring the Basharat into his kingdom. Is that my wife and I knew a young Christian woman who had a young Muslim man who was pursuing her for marriage. And we were telling her, you shouldn't marry a Muslim man. So she said, okay, um, I'm just going to bring him over to your house so you can meet him. And I thought, great, I can scare this young man away. That was my goal and him coming to my house. Um, Little did I know that he was from the Basharat and that he had a fairly open heart to the gospel. So we sat down and I began communicating the gospel with this man, and we'll call him Muhammad today. I began sharing with Jesus with Muhammad, and I was amazed to see his heart opened. He'd heard the gospel and dialect similar to his home dialect, but he'd never heard the gospel in his own language of Urdu. He'd never heard the gospel in a language that he could fully understand it. And as I shared, we had, we, we, we had been trained in how to share the gospel with Muslims and how to answer the questions and objections they had. And one thing he said a few times is he said, it's as if you know how to answer the questions that I have before I even know how to ask them. And so over the course of a few hours, um, I saw God opening Muhammad's heart to the gospel. And towards the end of that time, I was calling him to repentance and faith and baptism. And I could see that his heart was quite open. But the next day, I was coming back to the United States. So I told him that in a month, I'll be back. And when I come back to, 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 to our, our city, I'll spend time with you and I'll begin to teach you. If, and I told him, if you choose to follow Jesus, I will walk with you every step of the way and how to become a follower of Jesus. That night, Muhammad couldn't sleep. And the next morning, he woke up and began to go to all, the, all the, a few pastors in the city we lived in. And he said, will you baptize me? And you know what those pastors said? no. Nobody wanted to baptize him. They were afraid. They were thinking, if we baptize this man, what trouble could come upon us? And the barriers that keep Muslims from the gospel are so many. There's so many. So this young Christian woman that he was um, pursuing, she, um, she actually called her pastor who was out in a village area. And, he, and she said, hey, this young man wants to take baptism. Will you baptize him? And he said, yes. They hopped on a train, went out there, and Muhammad was baptized, and the next day that pastor married the two of them. So we, do, we told this young lady, Do not, we, we just want to tell you one thing don't marry this guy before we come back. So we showed up on the, coming back to the field, and they were on our doorstep, and they said, I've been baptized, we're married, we're ready to follow Jesus. And that's how the gospel got to the Pesharit for the first time. Um, you can see that our contributions were pretty small, but when we look at our passage, when we think of the six-fold process of sending so that we can preach, so that some can hear, so that some can believe, that so they can confess, that can, they can obtain salvation, we saw that process unfold, didn't we? That the IMB, um, the Midwestern Seminary, produced us as a missionary, that de- you guys developed us to help us to become the missionaries we are. We were sent through the International Mission Board with the backing of our home church, and... We, we were trained to preach and we were trained to preach in that local dialect and that language so that people like Muhammad could hear people who were far away from God so that the Bashar could hear for the first time that we were prepared, but it, it wasn't our power and our might that did anything. We were just there and ready and willing and God by his spirit and by his power brought Muhammad to us and God by his spirit opened Muhammad's heart and did a miracle. You see, we can't force belief on those who hear. We can't force belief on those who hear. It's only by the power of the Spirit, by the power of God, that God will break through among peoples. So I begin to train Muhammad in how to walk with the Lord. And we begin to meet day by day. And I was a busy guy. I barely had time for him. But we, I poured my life into him. I, I trained him in how to share the gospel and how to read the word and how to walk with Jesus. We walked through a lot of different things together. Um, But one of the things, one of the failings in his life was this whole question of confessing, of confessing the faith. You see, he was ready to follow Jesus, but he was not ready to confess Jesus before his own community. He was not ready to stand before his father, before his community, and tell them, I'm a follower of Jesus now. And every week, his father would call him because his father knew that he'd married a Christian girl, and he had two questions. His dad would ask him, did you go to the mosque and pray this week? And Muhammad every week would lie and say, yes, I did. And the second question is, when are you going to bring that Christian girl so we can convert her to Islam? And he'd say, soon, dad. And every almost every week when we'd meet for discipleship, Muhammad would come to me with, with a check in his heart and he'd say, it's not all right that I keep lying to my dad, that I keep lying to my family. And I, like a, like a good friend, I'd pour the fuel on the fire and I'd usually open up Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 32, and we'd read this passage and it'd break his heart more where Jesus told his disciples, therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my father in heaven. And I I would tell him, this is what the word of God says about this. And he would always wonder, can God forgive me for all the lies that I'm telling to my family? Will God accept me on the day of judgment? And I said, well, the surest thing for you to do is to confess Jesus before your father. And he would often tell me, but you don't understand, if I confess Jesus before my father, what trouble could happen? And when we look at this process that Paul unfolded, there's a reason that belief and confess, confessing are separated in that passage. For many Muslim background believers, it's easy to believe in secret, like Nicodemus did, right? Like Nicodemus was secretly a... um, in faith, that he was uh, he was watching things, he was trying to speak up for Jesus every once in a while. But there was something different in Nicodemus's life in, in John chapter 19, when he put, publicly took the body of Jesus with Joseph of Arimathea and baptized him, and I'm, I'm sorry, and buried him. I don't know what happened to Nicodemus after that event, but I guarantee you that him going public in his faith changed his life. And in the same way, Muhammad was scared And Jesus gives instruction about that, starting in verse 34 in Matthew 10. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. We don't, as followers of Jesus, we don't take up the sword. The sword is brought against us. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter-in-law against her mother, a um, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And Muhammad would read that passage and he'd say, that describes what will happen if I tell my father. So after about two years of being in Jesus, I remember he, this was a block in his faith. He went to his family, not just his father, but many of his family. And he confessed his faith and he stood up to cheer with them what God had done in his life and his dad did the only thing that a good Muslim man can do. And he stood up, rejected his son in front of his family, said, you're no longer my son. You're an infidel. You're no longer part of us. And Muhammad came back to me, a broken man that day, went a little mad at me, saying, why did you have me destroy my relationship with my father? Why did you call me to do that? And I told him, I didn't call you to do it. Jesus did. But well, let's pray and ask for God to do something great. And it wasn't long before um, Muhammad's dad, Shofiq, we'll call him Shofiq today, came around to us and was saying, and we had an opportunity with him again. You see, the whole family was convinced that Shofiq was demon-possessed, and they had brought him to doctors and psychiatrists. They had brought him to um, spiritual leaders, and nobody within the Muslim community could give him any help. So finally, the family said, well, we don't know what to do with this man. He's constantly filled with rage. He's filled with anger. Let's make him the Christian's problem. And they said, let's send him to Muhammad's home. So so Shofiq shows up in Muhammad's home and he crosses the, the threshold of his doorway. And what happened is a great peace, an unnatural peace came over his life. And Shofiq was amazed. And, he, um, and Muhammad saw the opportunity. So he sat down and shared the gospel with his dad. And his dad got angry, got up, left the house, and the oppression came back the moment he left. So the family was confused. And they said, the only place that our father can find peace is in the home of the infidel. But they kept sending him back to Muhammad. And because Muhammad was leading a church in his home and baptizing Muslims in his home and they were worshiping and studying the word in his home, his dad was there to see it all. And it was maybe six months later that um, we got to see Shofiq and Shofiq's wife take baptism and the number of Basharat who were in the kingdom went from one to three. Well, the con- kingdom continues to grow in that community. And, and now it's grown to about 10 or 12 who've taken baptism from the Basharat. We anticipate that a a number more of the Bishart will come to Christ, but how did it happen? It happened exactly like we see in Romans chapter 10, 13 through 15. God's desire, his plan is to bring salvation to every single one of those 3,000 unreached, unengaged people groups who've never heard about Jesus. But what he needs is he needs people who are sent. And he's looking around. God has chosen not to do this without his church. He's chosen to do this through his people, and he's chosen to use us, Right? and he's he's waiting for the church to be ready to go and he's waiting for the churches to be ready to send their best and we need to go so that we can preach the gospel and when we do that it is God's job when people hear to do the miracle in their heart like he did in Muhammad's heart now Muhammad has become a great partner in the faith and one of the greatest things, it's so such a joy to watch him go into villages where we see Muslim seekers. And and when they, they say, they tell other people, well, you guys don't understand, you're not from a Muslim background. You don't understand the trouble that we will face if we, if we confess Jesus as Muslims. And then Muhammad shows up and he shares his story. And that has been a breakthrough in the hearts of many Muslim seekers throughout South Asia to help them see an example of a brother who's gone before them. All right. So what are we supposed to do today with this message? What do I, what am I asking you guys to do? Really? Here's, here's what I'm asking. I'm asking you guys to consider what is the next best step of faith that God is calling me to, to become the one who's ready to be sent. When my wife and I were seminary students, we, half of our learning was in the seminary classroom and half of our learning was out on the streets of Kansas city of going and taking bold steps of faith. My wife and I quit our corporate jobs so that we could, um, we could move into the hood, first of Westport and then the northeast part of Kansas City, to work among difficult-to-reach people groups. Um, I had guns pulled on me twice during my time in seminary. I, um, I, I was in drug houses. We, were among, we, we got in the middle of one human trafficking, trafficking incident. Um, incident. We were in the middle of a lot of difficulties during our time at seminary, and how did that happen? Because we kept taking bold steps of faith to go to the edge of where the gospel needed to be. And what we need in missionaries, we need missionaries who are bold, who are, who are ready to step out in faith, who are like Peter, who are ready to step out of the boat, who are ready to, um, to, to go to the edge and to take, take their next chance for Jesus. Now, pastors— Seminary professors, those of you who are trying to develop the next generation of missionaries, I've often seen that pastors, are, um, pastors and missionaries have a difference in this, that missionaries like to take the edge. They like to um, take the, the, the risk. We're, we're often risk takers. Pastors are those who are called to shepherd the people of God and keep them safe very often. Pastors, I want to challenge you. As you develop missionaries, you need to be re- ready to call them to take risks for Jesus. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself took his closest 12 friends and said, I'm sending you as lambs in the midst of wolves. Um, Jesus was willing to send his closest friends and his comrades to death for the sake of the gospel. And if we want to do that, we, um, if we want to produce missionaries who are ready to take the gospel, to unreached peoples, to take the gospel to the edge where the gospel isn't, we need to be ready to send risk takers who are ready to do that. And as, as pastors, we need to be willing to submit our people, our best people into the hands of Christ, and to say, if they need to die for the sake of the gospel, they need to die. If they need to face difficulty for the sake of the gospel, they need to face difficulty. Jesus was willing to do that. How much more do we need to be doing, willing to do that as well? Now, one last question I want to talk about just for a moment, and bear with me. I know that um, as I've spent time at Midwestern this time around, and we've been here for the last few months, I've seen that there's a question that sometimes comes in people's hearts about the International Mission Board. And some people have wondered, Should, is the IMB the organization that I want to go with? And I want to give you an emphatic yes, that the IMB is the best missions agency to go with and it's the best missions agency to send with. And I want to submit to you that if you, um, if you as a pastor are looking to send people, send through the IMB. If you as a missionary are looking to go, go through the IMB. And I want to give you three reasons today. I could, I could give you a long list. Um, In fact, I thought about just doing this whole sermon about a list of reasons why the IMB is the best missions agency in the world. I've worked with this agency for a while. I love the IMB, and I hope you guys do too. But here's at least three reasons that the IMB is the best missions agency to go with in the world. The first, we train our missionaries better than anyone else. I see, we meet missionaries all the time overseas who have no idea what they're doing because they don't work for an organization that knows how to train them and develop them to become the best missionaries they can be. We first, we send people to our high-quality training um, in Richmond, uh, where they're trained by the best of the best. But the biggest part is a three-year internship that they do as apprentice missionaries overseas where they study and they learn under missionaries who have proven themselves. And we have this amazing three-year apprenticeship process where we develop and we pour our lives into into, um, missionaries before appointing them as career missionaries. And if you want to succeed on the field, if you want to thrive as a missionary on the field, I want to challenge you, go with an organization like the IMB that has such a robust training program for new missionaries. The second thing, we have the best I think it's the best research department in the world. And it's part of the cooperative program of how we're able to do things with the IMB, that we're able to pool this amazing department that sits in Richmond, that does global research. And because we as the IMB um, do that research, we as IMB missionaries are thrust to the edge of missiological research. We know where the UUPGs are. We know where the UPGs are. We know where the edge is. And the IMB keeps a focus on unreached people's. A third reason that the IMB is the best group to go with is this, is that we have just a robust missiology. If you doubt the missiology of the IMB, I want to I challenge you to go do something on your phone right now. Just type in the, uh, Google the words IMB foundations, IMB foundations. And what you'll find in the, probably the first item on your search is a PDF that was developed in 2018 that just expresses our robust missiology and how we approach the work on the field. And what, what, it, what you'll see is that we know what we're doing. You get to join us 179 years of tradition of people who are um, amazingly informed about how to do the great commission. The IMB stands as the premier agency of Southern Baptists to make Jesus's name known among the nations. And I hope that that tradition continues for many more generations because the IMB has been used to change the, the course of the great commission and many nations around the world. Now, Come back to this again one last time, and then I'm going to pray. What is the next step of faith the Lord Jesus is calling you to today? What is the next step that he's calling you to take to make Jesus' name known among the nations? Perhaps it's like my wife and I, that you need to take steps of boldness and and changing your job and your career so that you can find more time to to preach the gospel and make disciples as you're getting ready. Perhaps it's coming on a short-term trip. In fact, our team, uh, we're hosting a trip in June of this year. If you're looking for a trip to come on to, to explore this question of whether you want to go to the nations, come find me, and we'll get you on that trip, or talk to Dr. Joe, and he'll get you involved. It could be um, it could be moving down to the Northeast and getting involved with Muslim people groups or immigrant or refugee people groups in that area of the city. It could be getting more involved with your church and becoming a leader in your church and evangelism and driving the gospel to those who've never heard. But I want to challenge you that that's really the process that it takes to become a missionary, to be produced as a missionary, is to take constant steps of faith. And it's the only way that will guide you on the field as well. So let's pray. Lord God, I am so thankful for Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm thankful for the peoples in these, uh, in these seats, the peoples who are here today, Lord. And I pray that you'd make this great vision that uh, this missions moonshot happen in Midwestern Seminary. We pray for 100 missionaries a year to be produced out of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and sent through the IMB and other agencies to make your name great among those who've never heard. And Lord, we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.